Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs from Madison, Wisconsin. Today we have growth hacker legend with us, Sean Ellis. And I'm not even sure where to start with Sean's background. He's done a lot of stuff. So he's currently the CEO of growthhackers.com, which is a community for growth hackers. And before that, he was played a big role in the growth at companies like Dropbox, Eventbrite, and LogMeIn. And he's also the founder of Qualaroo, which is all about website surveys. So as you can tell, he's one of the main leaders in the growth hacker community. And what is a growth hacker? Well, we'll get into that. And But you can imagine it is a little bit about growth. So Sean, uh, thanks for joining us. We definitely appreciate it. Yeah, awesome to be on. Thanks, Dave. So let's first off, first start off the first half talking more about your personal, your background, and how you got into marketing and growth hacking. And then um, the second part, talk more about the growthhackers.com and maybe how you'd help uh, businesses. Uh, so first off, you know, you know, you got a big background. You've done a lot of stuff, but try. What is your background, and uh, how did you get into growth, and growth hacking? Sure. Yeah. So. Um... I, my first growth role was in a company that I joined, uh, in 1996. Um, I had, uh, been out of college for a couple of years and moved to Eastern Europe to, to Budapest, Hungary. And, um, a friend of mine was starting an internet company at the time. And, you know, those are the early days of internet companies. And so 1995, I got excited about what he was doing and invested pretty much everything I had into the company and then, uh, joined him. Uh, maybe six months later. Um, and, uh, just, uh, you know, when you've got all your money invested in the company, you kind of, you, you approach it a little differently. And, um, you know, it turned out that, uh, online marketing was, was quite a bit different from, you know, traditional marketing. And so it was just, just getting started in 96. But I think I had the, I think I had the benefit of actually, of actually, you know, caring more about real results than, than sort of perceived results, which sometimes, Sometimes marketers spend a lot of time on perception and, and maybe less time on, on reality. And yeah, for me, I just didn't want to lose all my money. So I was really, <laughs> really focused on trying to create a valuable company. And so that's where I got started. And what do you mean by real? Re, real oh, what do you mean by a real results? In that yeah. Industry? So sometimes like, yeah, sometimes companies are, are led by hype a bit. And, uh, you know, when you look under the hood, there's not a whole lot of substance there. And so, you know, and it, and it can start even within the company. So, um, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm signing up, yeah, 500 people a day and it's just in the beginning, people might say, Oh, that's amazing. Like in your own company, they might say, you're doing such a great job. And, you know, <laughs> if I'm looking and saying, yeah, I, I signed up 500 people, but a single one of them used the product. So, Perception internally is that I'm doing a good job, but the reality is I've added zero value to the business. So for me, it was about like, you know, really, really assessing, you know, the, the results of what we were doing from a marketing perspective to make sure that we were really acquiring customers that were really getting value from, from what we were doing. So this was actually an online games company. Huh. And, uh, and so I was, I was super, it was, it was interesting because I actually, I started in a sales role with the company and I was selling advertising, but we, we had almost no users on the website. So, um, buying an advertisement to reach almost no users is, is not very valuable. And so, um, I, I, I kind of told the, I told the CEO that, uh, that, uh, it, 
it would make more sense for me to maybe focus on customer acquisition for a little while and and not on uh, not on selling the advertising. So I uh, put put the efforts into customer acquisition, and um, I originally went out and spent. I could think a minimum buy I could do on a search engine at the time was like twenty thousand wow. dollars. So kind of scary <laughs> for an early stage company. Huh. So I I spent twenty thousand dollars and you know maybe got like a hundred customers from it and uh, the <laughs> basically the my my CEO said that's great like we doubled our users so maybe we had a hundred before that and um, and that's where I kind of started looking at it yeah and I was like gosh you know a hundred users twenty thousand dollars that's that's probably, you know, that, that, that's not very sustainable. That's probably not a not a good, <laughs> yeah, not not a good use. Of, there's there's no way those users are going to be worth two hundred dollars to us. And <laughs> and so, you know, just over time, got got better at, at figuring out figuring out like buying maybe on lower tier websites, um, you know, where that would allow me to test for five hundred dollars and get a read. And so um, we we ultimately ended up getting. We, we, the company ended up uh, becoming a, a publicly traded company, and and uh, when when we listed, we had the lowest customer acquisition cost for a free registered user of any publicly traded company. So Yahoo was one of the best at the time. I think they were about thirty dollars. We were uh, like six dollars. Wow. And um, you know, and at a, at a time where everybody else was, you know, buying ads on television and Super Bowls and. Yeah, sock puppets, and we eventually, after we went public, ended up doing some television advertising, but that was under a you know head of brand marketing and stuff that I wasn't really focused on. So that was that was kind of where how I how I got into it. And then same group of us, we sold that company to the Vendi Universal, and uh, same group of us started um, logging in in, uh, in Budapest uh, after we sold Uproar, and um, then I ran marketing at Logging In for. Five years until we until we filed to go public, and then I uh, decided I wanted to take on some new challenges, and um, basically basically realized that I'm looking at those two companies that the um, you know, most important thing that I did at each company was the you know the upfront stage and kind of figuring out how these companies would grow, why customers wanted it, getting the the measurement systems in place, and the the testing and Kind of all, all of these things that you know the infrastructure to, to sort of support long-term growth and some of that early channel discovery, and realized that kind of in the later years it was managing a lot of the channels that we'd already discovered, and so I wanted to get good at that upfront stage. And so for the next few years, I, I moved to Silicon Valley, and for the next few years, ended up working with companies just for six months at a time and helping them helping them get started with growth. And that that was when I worked with Dropbox, Benny that Bright, and Lookout. And what year did he move to yeah, Silicon Valley? Front. Sorry. Oh, what year did he move to a Silicon Valley? Uh, that that was two thousand and eight. Okay, and that's when he got hooked up. Yeah, or actually, saw... two, actually, two, yeah, two thousand seven. Actually, is when I moved there. But yeah. Okay, and that's when you because you started working at Dropbox right around two thousand eight. Is that right? Uh, yep, two thousand eight. So, so I, I basically split my time fifty fifty between Dropbox and Eventbrite for uh, for six month period. And uh, yeah, that was that was was a good first couple of companies to get involved yeah. with. And How yeah, you, you at the time, lucky at the you... time, Dropbox. Yeah, I got I got pretty lucky. So at the time, Dropbox had seven employees, wow. and um, I yeah, I just um, part part of it is I. First thing when I moved to Silicon Valley, I worked for a company called Zopni, and um, Zopni sold to, to Yahoo 
few years ago, but uh, the founder of the interim VP marketing role for six months where it was just focused on, on Zobni and the founder CEO of Zobni when I joined was the, uh, was the paternity brother of uh, Drew Houston, the founder CEO of, of Dropbox. And so um, he, they, they both went to MIT together and, you know, there's a lot of mistrust in marketers uh, from, from engineers. And so, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, as, as being referenced, by another engineer CEO, um, I think kind of kind of helped me get the foot in the door a little bit. You know, somebody who he trusted a lot, and then uh, and you know, and I, I just emphasize that it's your, most marketers are going to try to make this look like a lot of hocus pocus on on how it works, but it's actually very numbers driven and stuff that should be totally comfortable in the wheelhouse of of engineers. And that my my goal in doing a a six-month role with you guys is to do knowledge transfer and make you very comfortable at, at managing the growth process and really set you guys up for growth. And that was uh, that was that was most of what I focused on with them. And and I said you know we're lucky, but at the same time you probably helped them give a a nice platform for growth in those six months so that they could uh, figure out how to uh, grow to where they're yeah. No, there's, I mean, I think the luck is, is being in a place that had a lot of potential. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the part that's not lucky is helping them realize that potential. And, uh, and, and certainly Dropbox had a lot of potential. Eventbrite had a lot of potential. And my, and the way I got into Eventbrite was again through a, through a contact on the, on the Zobney side, one of the investors with Zobney, um, that was was impressed with what we were doing and, and made an introduction to Eventbrite to me. So basically, doing good work in one company led led to the doors opening in a couple more companies. Yeah, I guess that's how life works. When, if you do good work, yeah, you know, more more doors open. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, it's, it's definitely about you know earning trust and and uh, not not messing that trust up because. Uh, especially in Silicon Valley where it is, you know, a lot of people kind of talk about it as being hard to break into Silicon Valley and that, uh, that, that, that you need to like know somebody to get in. But, you know, at the end of the day, Silicon Valley, but the land of innovation, there's, there's so much great stuff that's been accomplished there. And that wouldn't happen if it wasn't, wasn't a pretty big meritocracy. If you, if you treat somebody badly or you don't do good work or you're, you know, Word gets out pretty fast, and if you're good, I don't care what your background is. If you're good, people people uh, find out about it, and, and word spreads quickly. And uh, and so it's um, it's it's definitely definitely a meritocratic environment. And I don't I just don't think they have that much success if it were if it were based more just on contacts. That makes sense. And and so th- throughout the your career, had, you know how. Did you continually improve? Did you have your own systems in place, or you know, sometimes people go through careers and that might not necessarily really have good system to keep learning. But I mean, you had to keep adapting to new technologies, new platforms. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so my my goal when I was working with these companies, um, I, I spent about four years, well, three and a half, four years, while I was, I was basically doing these you know, short term roles with these companies. My goal was not actually to make money my it wasn't it, my I had two main things that drove me reputation and learning and the only reason reputation mattered was that reputation opened the door to the opportunities where I could do the most learning and so 
it was, it was all about learning and all about kind of figuring out what, what are the systematic things that I can do when I go into a company? How can I, how can I create something that will be useful in the next role that I have? And so whether it's, whether it's templates or checklists or, you know, a better understanding of a tool to help me do this. And so I, I helped uh, get a bunch of different tools off the ground that, um, that made my job easier. So I was an early advisor to uh, Kiss Metrics, for example, which, yeah, previously to instrument the type of tracking that I could do with Kiss Metrics in, in just a day, it was taking me a few months and it was really kind of slowing down that process of getting started. Um, a company called Performable that ended up getting acquired by HubSpot was another company I worked closely with. But basically, basically I was advising these companies so that they'd build the tools that I would need to be really efficient in the job. So it wasn't just discovering the tools it was it was helping to define those tools interesting can you give an example of like a dropbox or eventbrite or whatever is the best example of uh, you going in and like that over those six months like what was your thought process and it, i mean th that could be a whole podcast yeah. in itself but um yeah, yeah but but now i mean first thing that i, I started out uh, very qualitative focus so what I was looking for were the people who were most passionate about the solution. So they were, most companies were, were really pre-scale to a large degree. I, I joined Dropbox the week that they launched publicly. And, um, but there was enough people on the private beta to, for me to basically dig in and see who, who was the most passionate. And the way I would identify them is I'd, I'd ask, uh, how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? And I was looking for people who say they'd be very disappointed without it. And once I found those people, then I really wanted to learn what made them tick. So um, it would start with some some interviews, but a lot of surveying. And so, at like one, I would say, why would you be very disappointed? Then I would ask, what's the main benefit that you're getting from this product? Why is that benefit important to you? Why why did you decide to try the product in the first place? Um, I also, with Dropbox in, in particular, I, I looked at uh, trying to identify, was it early adopters or what was kind of motivating them to try it? And so I asked the question, uh, which best describes you? I like to be among the first to try cool new technology, or I only try things that will be useful for me. And um, what's interesting is that I found in the beginning, about 80% of the people who were using it the week that we launched were people who only, you know, who, who tried, who'd like to be among the first to try cool new technology. But by six months later, it had flipped where 80% of the people were people who would only try things that they thought might be useful for them. And, um, and so a lot of qualitative. And then once I, once I had the qualitative understanding, then it was about, uh, you know, just, just making sure that I've got the messaging to match what their needs are along the way that I'm setting the right promise for um, what the product's going to do for them. And that I'm understanding where they're having friction along the way of trying to get started with the product, and I'm just making it as easy as possible for them to get started with the product and have have the right expectations. So a lot of a lot of A/B testing and measurement systems that need to go in place to uh, to to track and keep improving that flow. And that messaging would that be on the website and search engines and social platforms or where? Would yeah, most, mostly on the website. Okay. Yeah. Mostly on the website. So I was, I was trying to deal initially with organic traffic and just, uh, you know, so many people they get caught up in AB testing where they, well, they'll, they'll do website messaging that maximizes the registration rate, for example, or even the, the click through rate to the next page. But if, they don't 
if, if that messaging is not accurately reflecting the real benefit that they're going to get from the product, you're you're converting the wrong type of people. You're you're setting this false promise that the that the product will fail on it. So yeah, that's why I started with the most passionate customers first. I tried to make sure that I was really uh, putting a genuine message out there that uh, reflected what makes the product really great and is gonna is gonna help drive conversions of of people who would be really passionate about it once they tried it. And and how did you get that organic traffic? Was that just uh, PR or how was the traffic? So yeah, you? in the in the case of yeah, in the case of Dropbox and Eventbrite, they both had really good um, really good natural growth engines. So um, in the case of Dropbox, the number one um, the number one source of, of organic traffic was actually just pure word of mouth. People who were passionate about the product telling other people. But um, we also had anybody who was sharing files using Dropbox. Basically, if somebody went to receive that file, it would be in a wrapper that promoted Dropbox and introduced them to the concept of Dropbox. And then in that case, I got to them, I, I have to get inside their head and know that for them right now, this product looks like a file sharing tool, period. It's just a, a way for somebody to share a file with someone else. So nothing about collaborating on a whole folder or synchronizing your files between your computers. So I, I had to keep the message really focused around the use case that they were onboarding through and then find a way to kind of gradually introduce them to the full picture of what the product could do. And uh, so that was with Dropbox. And then with Eventbrite, a lot of the traffic was coming in through, you know, if I set up an event um, and I invite, you know, 150 people to that, in, to that event, then, uh, then all of those people are getting exposed to the, to, to Eventbrite. And, some of them are going to be event organizers. And so, um, again, in both cases, there was this pretty good uh, natural organic introduction from user to user that um, really needed to be understood and then optimized. That makes sense. And do you get to, for companies that might not have quite as good organic um, or like that referral growth, like let's say Qualaru, do you get more involved with the onboarding or bringing traffic in? So yeah, what, what, so with logging in, for example, yeah. we we did spend quite a bit on uh, on AdWords initially, getting getting people coming through. And uh, I think the interesting thing, kind of where the two tie together, though, is that with logging in, we were spending. Um, I think we 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 kind of topped out the first time at about ten thousand dollars a month that we could spend on uh, on AdWords, and just could not profitably scale it beyond that. But when we looked at the numbers, you know, majority of people who signed up for logging in never actually used it. That they they would sign up but not download, or they'd sign up and download but never do a remote control session. And so when we mapped out that funnel, we realized that very few people were getting to the to the benefit of the product. And if they didn't get to the benefit, then there would be no organic word of mouth coming off of that. There'd be no people who, who would upgrade to the premium version. Like all of the value was, was based on actually experiencing the product. So when, when we saw we had such a bad funnel, we went back and, uh, and tried to understand why we were losing people, did a lot of surveying, a lot of A-B testing, and were able to eventually get about 1,000% improvement in the wow. percentage of people who signed up and ultimately used the product. And when we did that, we went back to the same channels that we'd previously tested that scaled to $10,000. And now they scale to over a million dollars a month with a positive return on investment. So 
that money was paid back within, I think it was three or four months. And so, um, so basically like these two things go together. You can't just spend externally and think it's going to work. You need, you need to be obsessive about every step in the customer journey until they, until they ultimately really get the benefit of the product. And that's where I think most marketers, most marketers kind of get them to the front door and then they say, okay, now it's products team or products turn to, to, to figure out how to, how to turn them into value. And, uh, and so a lot of these, a lot of these prospective customers kind of, you know, fall into no man's land where no one's really focused on, on trying to, uh, trying to get them to a good experience with the product. So w- one more, uh, kind of more personal question what, uh, so you, you've, uh, you've done a lot. Have you had any major lessons or mess ups that, uh, you've, uh, learned quite a bit from, or is it more lots of little mess ups? Every day, yeah. No, I've never had a mess up. It's amazing. No, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> You're I've had mess ups. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a thousand percent all the time. Um, no, so like I, I definitely, I've, you know, a lot of I, a lot of tests that I do, I try to test them all. So I give you one example of like you know spending the twenty thousand dollars on that first marketing spend, but you know it's, it's how you learn from that, and, and me realizing I don't need to spend twenty thousand dollars to know that a channel is not viable. I can figure that out on $500. And so even when my budget was a million dollars a month, I still never did any new media where I tested for more than $500. And if they wouldn't go down to that size, then, then they knew they had no chance for my business. And, you know, and other, other channels were making millions of dollars of, you know, millions of dollars from us, but they started at 500. And so um, I drove my agency crazy at the time when they were out having to having to do those buys for us. But I just said it's crazy for us to spend more than five hundred dollars to find out something doesn't work. Um, so that would be one example early on. But I, I'd say like a bigger picture example would be you know, So after I did these these companies where I was uh, helping them go to market and uh, you know, crank up that early growth, I then um, decided I was going to start my own company and and you know apply some of those lessons to my own company. So I raised uh raised several million dollars for um a company called Catchfree. And uh it was it, it was based on you know of, of all of the companies that helped bring to market, they, they almost all had this this free to premium uh model where they had a free version that you were trying to you know move from that free version to a paid version. And I found that one of my big disadvantages was you know when I was trying to spend on advertising to drive customer acquisition with these companies were at a big disadvantage because they're what they could pay to acquire a free user was a fraction of what somebody who only had a premium only business could pay. And so even though the users wanted to find these free products uh, that, you know, there was this kind of like this mismatch in, in the channels to reach those users. So I wanted to create a channel that was exclusively available only to the free businesses. And, um, and that I, I knew how their business models worked, that they had, they had an allowable acquisition cost. It was just a lot lower. So if I could kind of market them as a group, I thought that would work well. I was able to raise you know, millions of dollars on that, on that pitch. And, uh, it took me about a year and a half to two years, uh, you know, the team that I built for us to figure out that, that we had just some, some wrong assumptions in the business. One was that, um, people, People only needed these free apps, you know, once every few months. And so it was really hard to drive habitual usage, which, um, which is important in any business. 
and uh, and then a lot of the, the customer acquisition that we were trying to do through Google, um, they, they had some rules about how you could spend money. So one, they, they, they ended up blocking us for uh, for a business that they called like a landing page business that they said wasn't you couldn't do. So then we turned it into a comparison engine, like completely rebuilt the site to be compliant with Google. And then they, then we ran into another problem with Google where they wouldn't allow us to spend money on customer acquisition. And so, um, so anyway, so I, I got to the point where it just became clear that uh, there, there was not a great way to acquire customers. We weren't able to retain them on a regular basis. I still had, enough of the money left from uh, my initial fundraise, but I, I figured it was the right thing for the business to, to essentially shut that down. And, uh, and then we ended up acquiring uh, a, a product called Kiss Insights from Kiss Metrics, where I had mentioned I was an advisor. I helped them initially get started with that product, Kiss Insights, and it was kind of less core to their business and we had an opportunity to acquire it. And, uh, and so then, then, built that into Qualaroo and which is now a profitable business. But, um, you know, the whole, the whole catch me, I don't really look at it as a mistake. I look at it as, you know, I, I, I learned a lot from it and, um, I'm still in the process of building value for the investors who backed me on that. So, um, it's a big mess up. I'm not sure, but I, uh, <laughs> but it, but I think, uh, you know, ultimately, ultimately it'd only be a big mess up if I gave up after that. But, um, but, you know, I put the money to work and, uh, and I am confident that the investors who invested in that are going to do really well. Yeah. That's impressive. You turned it, you know, you turned it into something else like Qualaroo. That's, uh, that's not easy to do. That's for sure. No. And and in fact, even, even with Qualaroo, um, you know, once we got that to a profitable business, then then we started looking at it um, to, to see, you know, can that give the big venture returns that our investors are expecting? And uh, and initially, something that had just been kind of a tactic for Qualaroo was GrowthHackers.com, and we started to look at GrowthHackers.com and realized that there was there was a lot that we could do with GrowthHackers.com to turn that into a really big, valuable business. So for a long time, we've been taking the profits that are coming off of Qualaroo and investing into building uh, growth hackers. And I have now two separate teams and, and running them pretty independently. Oh, interesting. Okay. And that's the a perfect segue into uh, growthhackers.com. Um, uh-huh. Can you, uh, that was the next question. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about the growthhackers.com platform and maybe in your, from your definition of uh, what growth hacker is, or I know it's, there's lots of definitions, but just for people out there, if they're not too familiar with the term. Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll start with the kind of definition of what I think growth hackers are. Um, I'm, I made the word up, so I guess I can I can be the guy who defines it, right? That's pretty impressive, like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so for me, yeah, for me, it was it was basically that you know marketing is this. You know, if anyone's seen a marketing tech, textbook, it's Usually they're, they're very thick books with a whole bunch of stuff that you could be doing. And, um, I wanted to do something that was kind of more narrowly focused around what I thought had direct impact on growth. And so for, for me, growth hacking is really about using data and experimentation to drive growth. And so that, that's, that's kind of the looking at everything that you're doing to see how, how is that directly impacting growth? And if it's, if it's not if it doesn't have a very clear direct impact on growth, then uh, 
then the growth team or the, you know, in an early stage company, the growth hacker probably shouldn't be doing. And so that, that's, hopefully that's clear in what, what I mean. It's really data and experimentation to, to drive growth. That makes sense. Yep. And, uh, yeah. And so then, oh, yeah, so growthhackers.com was, was basically built, uh, as, as I said, it's sort of, it's been, it's been an evolving uh, business that's that's come from you know seeing opportunity after opportunity. So so one we launched it with Qualaroo because we saw that when we ran Qualaroo on a marketing related website, um, the you know the main way that Qualaroo spreads to other websites is there's a little link down at the bottom that says Have you qu- tried Qualaroo yet? People click on that, they get a promotion for Qualaroo, and then they decide if they want to add it to their website or not. And we found not surprisingly, that if you if you run it on Disney, a bunch of kids clicking on that probably don't have websites that they could pay to put a survey product on. But if uh, if they have, you know, if, if they're a marketing related website, then they had a lot of the right audience uh, that would be really responsive to that message and, and convert into our customers. And so, um, what we decided was that there was a good opportunity to build a our own marketing related website to really showcase Qualaroo and, and drive growth with Qualaroo. And um, so it started out as really kind of like Reddit where uh, we were bringing together all the growth articles and marketing articles uh, brought together where the community itself could, could vote up and comment and discuss things that were in these articles. And, uh, and so we, yeah, we, so we initially built a, a community around that Um what, one thing that we required was that everybody who was participating, they they had to do it with their real name. They couldn't they couldn't come in and uh, you know call themselves Joe one two three and and you know start advocating a bunch of illegal things you know, or, or shady things that, that they had to they had to at least stand behind it with their real name. And uh, and so over time, you know, initially we just linked to their LinkedIn profile to, to verify who they were. But, um, you know, over, over time, we've added rich profiles where it says a whole lot about the person. And um, and then, you know, what we found through in, engaging with the people on the site, one of the big benefits that they get is um, inspiration for things that they should be trying to grow their business. So just, just ideas of just different, different, as I said, growth hacking is about experimentation and data. And experimentation requires lots of ideas of things to experiment on. So, um what we've now for the last year and a half been developing and it's been in private beta for a year has been a, uh, a platform for aggregating a backlog of ideas that you want to test and then managing them through a testing process and then building a knowledge base of what works and what doesn't work to grow the business. And so um, over the next few weeks, we'll actually be integrating that into the site and making it a much easier to send ideas that you discover on the website into your what we call growth hackers projects so into your project um, and then you can invite your whole extended team in there so that they can submit ideas and um, and really kind of manage that testing process and it's it's modeled after how companies like facebook and uber and linkedin have grown their businesses where it's it's really it, it mirrors a uh in, in software development, they, they have something called an agile sprint where they're, they're actually running these weekly sprints of development. So, um, a lot of these fastest growing companies run these weekly growth sprints where it's, they're identifying the experiments they're going to run that week. 
they run them, they analyze the results, they learn, they pick new experiments. And it's that continuous learning that has caused them to grow really quickly. And so we're, we're essentially productizing that process and, and connecting it into that community that we've built. Interesting. And so what's an example of a, a test case that somebody would uh, submit to uh, the community? And how, and how does that connect? Do you actually connect with their software? Or how does it connect with their business and their platform? Yeah, so so everybody who signs up for Growth Hackers has a project that's provisioned for them already, and so um, it's you know up to this point, people who've been running experiments are basically doing it in spreadsheets. So they'll they'll write their idea in a spreadsheet, they'll put the results in the spreadsheet, they'll invite other people into the spreadsheet. Sometimes they'll link to an experiment document that has screenshots of it, and so it's kind of a hodgepodge of systems. So this this consolidates it all into a into a single system where you can visualize every idea in the backlog. And so an example of ideas might be uh, one one idea that we ran recently is uh, it's kind of a, a checklist that we were inspired by something that that Cora has done or LinkedIn has done, but basically a checklist of things to do when you come onto the website. And um, and what we know is that the key action that we want people to do is comment because that, that really connects to their long-term uh, long, long-term retention in the community. But comment requires a lot of thought. So we give them a couple of easy things like a, a vote first. Um, and uh, I can't remember the other, other sorts of things, but you know, visit this page, vote on this. And then once they got the check boxes there, it's easier to push comment. And uh, and then what we know that once they do the comment that they're um, that they're much more likely to come back more often. And so that would be an example of something that we've done recently that increased comments by 700% for us, and um, and was really modeled off of uh, off of something that we've seen other sites do. Huh. Wow. Yeah. So you're going to have quite the uh, database and uh, knowledge base over time for a growth. And uh, what, uh, what what's your business model? So it's you, if you want to do it uh, publicly, if if you're just saving ideas that are already public in the community, and you're just looking for a place to save them. You can do that for free. Even if you want to manage the testing and record the results, you can do that for free. But if you want to do it secretly, privately, which you know most bigger companies are going to want to do. Then, then it's a monthly subscription okay. fee, so they can they can lock it down and do it privately. Interesting. And that and do you have a uh, any good? Uh, well, I'll go on to a different question. <laughs> that one won't, won't, that one isn't <laughs> going to be that interesting. <laughs> um, I was curious. So you, you, how many people are on the platform, and and how do you know um, who's on the platform? Like, I mean, how good they are. Or, and then with that is what are like the primary skill sets for a growth hacker? Yeah. So, so that's, that's kind of the beauty. Once you have workflow in there that, you know, right now it's the same way, like with, with LinkedIn or, or anytime you have a profile, you could say you're good at whatever you want to <laughs> right. say you're good at, but um, you, you may or may not be good at it. And, and that's been a big challenge with, with marketing people or growth people that you you just, it's really hard to separate who's, who's good and who's not good. And what's, what's nice with the system is that, um, we'll let people self identify expertise in three areas. 
But if they want to add additional expertise areas, they've got to earn them through their experimentation in the system. Oh, interesting. Well, that is- and so, that, yeah, so that, then it, it's just a matter of you, they need to actually run and implement experiment in, <laughs> in that area to be able to claim that as a skill. And so what we have is um, we have a, about 160,000 registered users in the system right now. And, uh, and then for the, for the workflow itself, uh, we have 7,000 companies that have signed up for, uh, for access to it. We've, we've opened it up to probably a thousand companies at this point, but, uh, num- number, because it's been in private beta, the number of companies are still on the waiting list. Interesting. And we're running out of time and I still have more questions. Well, maybe a, a couple more, maybe more, but, uh, sure. no uh problem. all right. What, what differentiates, uh, an average growth hacker compared to an exceptional one? Uh, so it, it, it kind of depends on, on the, the, the company stage. So if you're in a, if you're in a really early stage company, then, um, then you want someone who's super dynamic, who can, who can do a lot of their own implementation of their own ideas. You know, if they're, if they're just coming up with ideas all the time and they're, they're channeling them into an engineering department to, to implement, um, then, then they're probably not going to be that effective because in a real small company, your, your engineers are often building core products. Um, so in an early stage company, a lot of times somebody will actually have engineering background. Um, they're tenacious. They're, they're, they're dynamic with a pretty good skill set. So they, they can, they can go deep with the data. They, they're, they're familiar with tools like optimizing. So even if they're not an engineer, they can at least set up a lot of their own A-B tests in yeah, something yeah. like uh, Optimizely, which isn't that hard to do, but, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, it's not just the knowledge of running the test, but it's also the creative power of coming up with a good idea for the test and then the, the you know, discipline of running the test right and analyzing it correctly, acting on that information, having that lead to, to more and better tests. So, um, it's it's pretty hard to find the right profile in a super early stage company because the person needs to be so dynamic. But as you as you grow as an organization, then then it's really you know like for us we have a product manager of growth who's managing the process, who's who's essentially bringing ideas in from across the company, uh, running our weekly meeting where we're prioritizing which ideas get tested assigning those ideas out to, uh, to, to the right people to actually implement them, them each week and has a separate analyst who's running the analysis. And so then it becomes more about, um, you know, what's the right type of engineer to have in the growth process? What's the right type of analyst to have in the growth process? And, and where do the good ideas sit within the company and the, um, the, the product manager of growth or sometimes called growth master, or some people just even call it the growth hacker, um, would be, would be really, uh, more of a coordinator and, okay. uh, usually comes from a product management background and it's about kind of keeping the whole thing organized. And, and who's typically on that team? You know, you mentioned like the engineer and who else would be on that uh, kind of... So and, and engineers, designers, analysts, um, marketing people. It's a marketing will often be where the copy copywriting would come from. Um, and then, uh, you know, in, in our weekly growth meetings, I, uh, as a CEO, I'm participating. And in, in most of the companies that I see doing well, like if, if they're sort of a, 
less than 50 person company and they're having one weekly growth meeting, the CEO does participate and um, your head of product and your CTO, because, you know, if the, the CEO's main responsibility is driving sustainable growth. And so um, they, they, they should be a part of that process. Um, and uh, so it, it really kind of, and then, you know, if you get into a thousand people or more, maybe, maybe the CEO is not, not in there on a, on a weekly basis, but um, I, I probably would advocate even in a company of that size that uh, CEO should be pretty hands-on when it comes to growth. Interesting. That makes sense. And what, where do you see growth hacking going? And, you know, I think it's become a little more, uh, since you coined the term, I, what year did you uh, technically coin the term? Do you remember? Uh, 2010. 2010. Yeah, 2010. Okay. So, I mean, things have become a little more uh, systematic. It seems like, you know, with, there were probably not necessarily growth teams back in 2010, and uh, at least not in the same way. Yeah, there were, like, Facebook started their growth team in 2008. So okay. they, they were around, but they were kind of, they're kind of under the radar. Most people didn't know about Okay. Okay. And, and so where do you see the kind of the growth industry going in the next uh, three to five years? So I, I think um, what you're saying, like, so uh, uh, Harvard Business Review actually just posted a, an article um, within the last couple of weeks called the growth manager that really laid out what the role looks like, who's, who's managing the growth process. And, um, and you know, what the right organization looks like for that. And that was, that was based on a big study that they did that they're now teaching at Harvard Business School about, um, about how, how growth, how the growth process works and, and what a growth team looks like. Uh, and, uh, so I think, you know, as, as the business schools are starting to teach it, um, it's going to become more mainstream, but already as it is, IBM uh, has has a VP of growth. I actually was in contact with her today. Um, Microsoft has has uh, a pretty big growth initiative, and their CEO has talked about growth hacking quite a bit. Um, and you know, just a lot of people are looking at the fastest growing companies in history. That uh, you know, the the slacks of the world and the the Facebook and and LinkedIn and Uber and just trying to understand how have they done that. And, and a lot of it's been through product driven growth that is often not by accident, that, that it's through a lot of testing and optimization where they've got big growth teams that are, that are working in a very systematic way to drive that growth. And so um, when you have, when you have that kind of success, it's not surprising that lots of companies are looking to emulate that. And so I, I think we're just really on the front end. So it's like if you use Google Trends and you plug in growth hacking, you'll see that the growth of the term itself is at an all-time high right now, and it's still on a very steep uh, trajectory. So I think uh, I think we're still still in the early days of, of more and more companies um, adopting it. Do you wake up every morning and say, "Yep, I invented that term"? I would if I was you. <laughs> <laughs> usually, just usually just Saturdays. Saturdays. But, um, <laughs> have I, a ceremony. Uh, <laughs> for... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Part of it, to, to be honest, part of it is uh, kind of with mixed feelings on the term because um, there's a lot of people who got excited about the term when I first came out with it and kind of assign their own meaning to it. A lot of new graduates who'd never grown anything or you know, worked in the industry started putting it on their LinkedIn profiles. And so I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about it. And, 
and you know, there's there's some negativity, but yeah, at the end of the day, I don't I don't really care that much about the term. To me, it's really the the the, the process that leads to the results that matters, and people can call it whatever they want. True, true, and we're almost done here. So, have you for a business? You know, we've talked a lot about kind of B two C business consumer companies. What about the B two B? Is there? I assume the same type of. Uh, theories apply is there have you worked with any b2b companies and you know should they be looking at, some, at things differently yeah well i mean so qualaroo is a b2b company oh, yeah, I guess right. um, yeah. yeah and and i mean even even log me in had had a lot of b2b products in their in their business i mean it, and what you see with companies like log me in or dropbox is that uh, that, that sort of direct to consumer piece of the business is a lot of the engine of growth that leads into the B2B business. And so um, I, I think that the the hybrid companies have done really well. So if you like if you compare box box I guess this was box.net now this box, but if you yeah. compare box to Dropbox, yep. um, box was kind of like pure B2B and Dropbox was was more uh, B2C and B2B and um you know, last last I knew that I think Dropbox was was about somewhere between five x and ten x the valuation, and they started about the same time. So I, I do think that having having that uh, having that kind of consumer bottoms up approach in B two B can be can be really powerful. Yeah, that's smart. Um, so la- so last question, and uh, is there uh, one company out there that you would uh, love to help advise that you see out there? Um, that you could help grow oh, yeah. any product you're using sure. or yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. For me, it's, it's really is all about learning. And so, um, I mean, I, I look more where, where would I be able to learn the most? And it, it would be, it would be from the teams at, uh, at either Facebook or, or Uber. I mean, some of the, some of the companies that have figured out how to, how to get, Two, three hundred people on a growth team working really well together, and and you know driving continuous growth at 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 levels that we've never seen before. Um, I think uh, I, I I think that there's there, there's some really cool stuff that's going on there, and I I would I would love to uh, to, to have you know at least at least a month of being able <laughs> to be immersed in there to really learn from that. I, I'd have a hard time leaving my own business to go join a team like that. But, uh, but, uh, you know, if I, if I wasn't doing my own thing, I'd be all over trying to get on board with a company like that. That's interesting. That wasn't the answer I expected, but I like that. I mean, especially with your experience, I mean, you've done the very early stage. Um, and so I can see, uh, setting up a team of uh, 200 people growth team is, that's another whole level. That's interesting. Yeah, there's definitely that's that's the area that I've been most most focused on learning about for the last couple of years, and it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. Okay. Well, I think that's it. I definitely we definitely appreciate it. Uh, Sean has been awesome. You're you're quite. The, I love your philosophy around you know every project should be about learning, and uh, yeah, and you're great uh, great asset for well for this uh, the growth community. And, uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. And, uh, thank you. I appreciate it, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Thanks. And thanks everyone for listening to uh flyover labs and uh, we'll see you uh, next time. Bye everyone.